So turn with me to Psalms 128. This story has nothing to do with the sermon I'm going to preach tonight. If you remember, on the very first night, I started telling a story, and I was telling the wrong story. <laughs> it wasn't the story that was meant to go with the sermon I was preaching. So I stopped in mid-drift mid and changed around and told the right story and left some people hanging. And if you remember the story, now let's see if I can remember the story. <laughs> I, I was telling you that I was working in the mines and then at 25 I began reading the Bible. I was baptized when I was 27 years old. Then I quit working in the mines and went to work in a little place called Woodland Park Foundation. I was a student for a couple of years and my wife and then one year I was on staff and then they made me the president. And that's about as far as you know the story went. Well, what follows that is that I didn't know anything about leadership. By the way, I hardly know anything about leadership now. So you can imagine how it was 40 years ago. All I knew about leadership was that if you worked your tail off, then maybe you could accomplish something, and I would call that success, you see. And so this was my idea of, of being a leader of a small institution. We were just going to work and work and work. And if there were too many students in our little school, then those extra students would be in our home. And if there was anyone that would come to visit, we would host them. And if there was a heavy end to the load, that's the end we would lift. And if there was a dirty end to the stick, that's the end we would handle. Okay? And so we worked and we worked and we worked. Well, about a, about a, um, a year down the road, my wife began to say, listen, you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. We're working ourselves to death. This isn't living. We need to leave. And you remember I said, we can't leave because I know how God has led us here, but I don't see Him leading us away. I can see all the providences that, in, that put the responsibilities on my shoulder, but I don't see Him relieving me of those responsibilities. There isn't anything I can do. And that held for a while. And then a year or two down the road, she came back and she says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to take the children and I'm going to go. And my only answer was exactly the same as it had been before. I can see the responsibility that God has given me. I don't see him relieving me of it. I don't know what to do. And then finally, about four or five years down the road, my wife began to use the D word. That's as far as we got in the story. Yeah. And what was the D word? Divorce. Yeah. And it got my attention. You can understand it got my attention. I love her dearly. Who wants to be divorced from such a wonderful person? <laughs> She's sitting right there. I've got to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So because it was so serious, I began to pray. And I began to claim a very special promise. Now, I understand that I don't have the sermon surrounding this little story that I would normally have. And so I'm just telling you the story outright. Turn with me to Psalms 128. I had a, we, had a, we were living in a home that was three stories. And on the third story, we had domers. I don't know if you know what that is. But anyway, we had a little door and I could go in there. And every morning I would go in there and I would pray. I would claim this promise. Every evening I would go in there and I would claim this promise. I want you to notice what it is. This is Psalms 128. 
And we're going to read from verse 1. Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord, that walks in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be. It shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the side of your house, and thy children as olive plants round about your table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that fears the Lord. And I would go into this little domer and I would put my finger on the promise and I would stick it under God's nose and I would say, listen, you promised, you promised. I didn't make this promise. God made this promise to me and to all of us. And he said that if we want to do God's will and if we want to walk in his ways, if we want to be God's man, then my wife will be a fruitful vine by the side of my house and my children will be olive plants round about my table. Now, I really don't know how long I prayed that prayer. It was week in, week out, month in, month out. And somewhere along the way, I quit praying this thing. I don't remember when I stopped. I don't know why I stopped. In any case, I woke up to it about 10 years later. I, <laughs> yeah, 10 years later. I was in Norway. I was doing a series of meetings in Norway, researching through my Bible, came across Psalms 128, and it was like, Whoa, I used to pray this prayer every day, twice, twice a day for months and months and months, whatever happened. Well, by this time, we have moved to Africa, and my wife had come onto her own. And now you've heard some of the stories of some of the things that the Lord has used her to do. And it's amazing. It's still amazing to me. Even to this day, she is in Africa, and she is still working for the African people, bringing the gospel over there, doing an amazing work by herself, rising rising up raising up an institution by herself by god's help and god's grace doing an amazing thing and as far as i'm concerned she is what does it say a fruitful vine by the side of my house does god answer our prayers oh yes oh yes and my children living in three different countries you can't pray that your children will be missionaries and then complain if your children are missionaries no, really. And so I brought my son to Africa when he was 14 years old, and he's 40 years old. He'll be 40 years old in one month. And he is the director of his own mission station out there in Tanzania. And my wife has her own institution in Tanzania. I have a daughter in the Yukon Territories, and she has a home church, and she has all these people giving Bible studies and also doing health, health clubs and whatever else she's doing, doing all that she can to spread the gospel. I have a daughter in Wenatchee, Washington, who has raised up I don't know how many choirs, and they've had to expand the church because they have become so popular and people are coming to church there. What a blessing. Does God hear our prayers? Do we believe the promises of God? Do we believe them enough to not let Him go? To petition the throne? Yeah. Our prayers need to be, what's the word? Um, never mind. We don't, have, we don't have time to wait for my brain to catch up with my mouth. <laughs> so let's go on. Let's go on to tonight's, um, tonight's little sermon. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We've been studying together the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, I always receive a blessing in studying the parable of the prodigal son. I have a question, though, to ask you before we get started again into tonight's tonight's story how many steps are there to salvation one 
Anybody else have any answers? Do you know that there are no wrong answers? <laughs> no, it's true. There are no wrong answers. If you said there were no steps to salvation, you'd be right because the uh, salvation has been worked out by Jesus Christ for us in the full and He's handed it to us fully without our taking any steps. However, if you were to say there's one step to salvation, you would be right. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? How many steps is that? Well, you can say it's one step, right? The other day we studied together and we saw that Ellen White points to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, and she says, you know, lay hold on this promise and you shall be saved, right? And what does Revelation 22, 17 says? Come and take. Yeah, come and take. Well, we could say that's two steps, right? How many chapters in the book Steps to Christ? Thirteen. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to say there are thirteen steps. All I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter which number you throw out there, you can probably make something fit any number you want. Yeah, but if you take the parable of the prodigal son and you take the prodigal son himself and, and read very carefully just to see just exactly which steps he took, you'll find that there are three steps in the parable of the prodigal son. So we're in Luke chapter 15 and we're looking at verse 17, the first six words in verse 17, and it says, and when he came to himself. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, whatever you said is true. <laughs> he came to himself. He came to his senses. He came to his senses about his spiritual condition. He came to his senses about his relationship with his father. He began to see the mess that he was in and he began to recognize and to realize that his father could help him. His father could save him from the situation he was in. And let me tell you something, or maybe I should ask it in a question. Is it possible to be saved if we never come to our senses about our spiritual condition, about our relationship with God? No, we can't be saved. I think there are a lot of people out there in this world who are floating around, who are doing whatever it is they're doing, who never give it a thought, who find themselves in messes, and instead of turning to God, will turn to the bottle. They'll turn to drugs. They'll turn to anything that's, that masks or that hides or, you know, can't find a word for that either. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they turn to. The second step is in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. Can anyone be saved if they don't come to God? No. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man gets to the father no one gets to heaven but by me. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. And if we don't come to Jesus, we don't find salvation. That's step number two. And tonight's sermon surrounds step number three, and you can look at verse 21. Verse 21, Luke chapter 15. This is after he comes, the, the prodigal son comes home, and his father has received him open arms, full 
hugs and kisses and, and the whole nine yards. What a wonderful reception. Hey, we could do a whole sermon. As a matter of fact, most people, when they study the, the, the story of the parable of the prodigal son, this is the central verse. And I skirt around it. We've preached a lot about this. How are we received by God? Ah, friends. He's paid so high a price that we can please Him in no other way than to come. And He can't be any happier than when we do come. And so when the prodigal son came home, this father had been yearning over this boy for so long, however long it was, that when he came home, there was no anger, there was no bitterness, there was no all kinds of conditions set so that the boy would meet certain conditions, nothing. He was just received in all fullness. And that's how we're received, by the way. Come, come, and God will receive you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know how bad you are. It doesn't matter. God knows, and I don't know that there's anyone here that's a worse sinner than anybody else. God has paid the penalty for every sinner in the world. And he says, come. I've already paid the price. Come. I'm yearning over you. I want you. So come. Now the third, the third step to salvation is found in verse 21. When the son comes home, the son says to his father, I have sinned, and uh, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called your son. What's he doing here? I call it the three C's of salvation. Come to your senses, come to your God, and confess. Yeah, that's what he's doing. Now, is, um, is this reasonable? Is God asking too much? Is there anyone in the whole world supposing that they are paralyzed from the neck down who cannot do this? No! Everyone can do this even if you are paralyzed from the neck down because it can all happen in the, in the, in the recesses of your own heart. No one has to do penance. No one has to take a pilgrimage, not to Mecca or to Rome. No one has to pay money. No one has to work. All we have to do is come to our senses about our need, come to our God who alone can meet that need, and when we get there, we cast all our cares upon Him. This is what confession is, by the way. Have you done it? If you've done this, what do you know? Well, look at verse 22. Just the first part of verse 22. But the father said to his servant, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. What does that represent? That represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so what does that mean? All that he did was come to his senses, come to his God and confess his sins. And right then, at that point, the robe of Christ's righteousness was around him. He had salvation. Do you think you need to do something more than that? Oh, no. No, no. We don't need to do anything more than that. Let's look at confession a little bit. You can turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Uh, I suppose, if you've been an Adventist any length of time, you would... Uh, you would know this verse pretty well by heart. This is one of the memory verses that everyone studies. 1 John chapter 1, we're looking at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is this true? Is this hard to do? Well, sometimes it is. <laughs> 
Confessing is not always easy, and it isn't for this proud heart. You know, if I do something wrong, I want to confess, I know to confess, but sometimes it's not easy. However, this is all that God is asking, and the promise is true. And it's true to me, and it's true to you. Martin Luther, a lot of, probably everyone in here has heard of Martin Luther. You remember that Martin Luther, when he was a little boy, was obsessed with salvation. He wanted to be saved. Now his thinking was logical. He grew up in a Catholic persuasion, and the thinking in the Catholic persuasion is quite logical, actually. If sin is the problem, all you have to do to get to heaven is to quit sinning. Now, I grew up in a Catholic home, and I don't know how many times I've heard my mother say, if you want to go to heaven, be good, okay? And if you're bad, you won't go to heaven. And that's very logical. Sin is the thing that's going to keep us out of heaven, isn't it? Yes. So all you have to do is quit sinning. And this is what Martin Luther thought, because that's what he was taught, okay? But how, how well does that work? Well, it doesn't work. It cannot work because... Sin is not a matter of what we do only. Sin is also a matter of the nature that we have. We have sinful natures, therefore we sin. That's, we have no choice. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Neither are you who are accustomed to do evil do what? Do good. You can't do it. You cannot change yourself. You've got to have a miracle worked in your life. Martin Luther had not realized this and so... The religion was very frustrating for him, but he did not want to be lost. And so he hung on, he hung on uh, year after year. By the time he was a teenager, he was sent to the university by his father because Martin Luther event evidently was very, very intelligent. And it was recognized. They could see how intelligent he was. So they sent him to the university to become a lawyer. But becoming a lawyer for Martin Luther was not his obsession for sure. His obsession was still that he wanted to be saved. And so he wrestled with this, wrestled with this, wrestled with it, until he came up with an idea that he thought was foolproof. And so he threw a party, invited all his friends, and then he gave up his toys, whatever his toys were in that time, gave to all his friends, and then he left after the party, made his way to a monastery, and there he knocked on the door, and somebody came and opened a little wicket gate and said, who is it? And he said, it's Martin Luther, I want to be a monk. And his thinking was that these guys inside the monasteries didn't do anything but pray, and if they didn't do anything but pray, then obviously they're not sinning, right? So he had solved the problem except that he hadn't solved the problem. And he found out, being a monk in a monastery, that he was still sinning because sin is not a matter of circumstance. Sin is a matter of nature. And it was painful for him. So he began to flagellate himself. He began to do all kinds of religious disciplines in order to get himself to quit sinning to the point where he nearly lost his life. In his early 20s, as far as I can tell, it was his early 20s, he ended up to be very, very sick there in the monastery, confined to his little cot in his little cell, and he was dying. An older monk heard what was happening to Martin Luther, and so he made his way to that monastery and into that little cell by Martin Luther's cot, knelt beside Martin Luther and said, Martin Luther, would you be willing to recite 
the Lord's Creed after me? And Martin Luther said, sure, just go ahead. So the older monk began to recite the Lord's Creed one phrase at a time and Martin Luther would repeat it and they did that all the way through the Lord's Creed until they came to the place where it says, I believe in the forgiveness of my sins. And Martin Luther said, I believe in the forgiveness. No, 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 no. I believe in the forgiveness of my sins. And Martin Luther said, I believe in the for." No, I believe in the forgiveness of my sins. And he repeated it over and over and over again with more and more emphasis until the light went on in Martin Luther's head. Now, wait a minute. If Jesus went to the cross with all of my sins, if Jesus paid the whole price for every sin I may ever commit, then what's wrong with my head? It's my duty, it's my right to believe in the forgiveness of my sins. Are your sins forgiven? Do you know what Ellen White says? This is 1888 materials, 948. Watch this. True religion, the only religion of the Bible, is believing in the forgiveness of sins. Really? Really? Isn't that a strange quotation? I mean, aren't we so good at adding? You remember the Jews in Jesus' day? How many laws they added to the law in an effort to protect the law so that they would not break the law, they made other laws? Yeah. I don't know that we've gone that far. I don't know that we've come to that point. But it seems to me that many people have a very complicated religion, very complicated theology, and it would take hours to decipher through all kinds of stuff that they want to talk about. But it's not that simple. I mean, it's not that complicated. Isn't it simple? True religion, the only religion of the Bible, is believing in the forgiveness of my sins. Because Jesus has gone to the cross and he's paid the price. Now, some of you might be saying, well, that's fine, except that I really am bad. You don't know what I have done. No, it's true. I don't know what you have done. And I don't care what you have done. If this does not cover your sins, then nothing else has. You remember what we read the other day? Let me just read it to you again. All that a man can possibly do toward his salvation is to accept the invitation. This is 6 B.C. 1071, paragraph 5. All that a man can possibly do is accept the invitation to come and take. No sin can be committed by man for which satisfaction has not been met on Calvary. Thus the cross in earnest appeals continually prefers to the sinner a thorough expiation. Thorough expiation for every sin that was ever committed. And this is from the Word of God. And it's true. Don't go telling me that your sins are too big, your sins are too bad, because it isn't true. You have a too high an estimation of yourself. Mm -hmm. Go with me to Second uh, Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter 12. We'll look at a man there with his sins. Second Samuel, chapter 12. This is the story of David. I don't suppose that I have to make a long, long story of it. You know what happened to David one day. He's, he's in his uh, middle to late 50s. Uh, he's not going to war anymore. David had a hard life, you understand. Uh, you know, being a warrior all his life. 
and it, it really wears on you, wears on your body. And so by the time he's in his mid-50s, going to war is a bit more difficult. They don't want him to go to war anyway. He's got plenty of warriors, young men who can do this, and so he stays home. But boy, David has been an active man. He's not the kind of guy that sat on his hands and did nothing or just ordered people to do stuff. He was a very active individual. So now here he is at home with nothing to do while his men are on the front lines fighting. And you can imagine, he's walking around the palace and he's, he doesn't know what to do with himself. Well, he ends up on the balcony and there in the open court is a lady taking a bath and her name is Bath. <laughs> I wonder why she got that name. But anyway, why in the world she was taking a bath in an open court is another question. I have no idea. However, he sends a servant down there to bring her up. Doesn't say in the Bible what they did. But about a month later, she sends a note to him to say, I am pregnant. And he says, oh, bummer. That wasn't in his plan. This wasn't supposed to happen. See? So he has to cook up a plan. You know the story. He has Uriah, her husband, by the way, who is a Hittite. He's on the front lines. He's one of David's best soldiers. He has him come home. He gets him as drunk as he can get him drunk. And after the party, he says, go home to your wife. And Uriah says, me? Go home to my wife? What are you talking about? I've got comrades out there on the front lines. They're risking their lives. And I'm here having a party, drinking booze. And now I'm going to go to my wife? No way. Not only does he not go to his wife, he leaves the city altogether, goes outside the city gates, and he sleeps on the ground. And so he has foiled the king's plans. So David thinks up of another plan. He writes a letter to Joab, his captain, seals it, gives it to Uriah to give to Joab. And in the letter it says, put Uriah where he will be killed. And Uriah was killed. So now David has committed adultery and David has committed murder and David has no conscience about it. Isn't that amazing? This is a man who, whose conscience was so sensitive that God could say he was a man after God's own heart. All of a sudden, he is not man, a, a man after God's own heart. All of a sudden, he is like a heathen king. He's bought in to what the kings around him were thinking, the divine rights of kings. Have you ever heard of the divine rights of kings? That's when you can do whatever you want because you're the king. You can take a woman, you can leave a woman, you can kill a man or you can save a man's life. You, you can grant him pardon. And this were the divine rights of kings. He's buying into this nonsense, but God is not buying into it. And so he sends to him the prophet Nathan. Prophet Nathan has a story for, for David. He says there's a rich man over here, has all these sheep, and he has a poor man living next door who has one ewe lamb, and the poor man loves this ewe lamb. They eat the same food, they sleep in the same bed, apparently, and, I mean, they were really close. <laughs> yeah. The problem was, of course, is that the rich man did not kill one of his sheep when a visitor came along. He took the, the poor man's ewe to, to kill to serve to his visitors. And David is like, whoa, that's not right. And he says, that man is going to pay fourfold. Did you know that David paid fourfold? Did you know that David lost four sons on account of this sin? Listen, there are consequences to sin. Now, let's read together verse 7. Well, not together. I'll read it to you. 
verse 7. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. I love what is said after that. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such. What is the Lord saying here? David, I have given you and I have given you and I have given you and if that was not enough, open your mouth and say so. With my son I have freely given you all things. It's all yours. Everything that belongs to me belongs to you. You can have it only don't sin. Do you know that the Lord is speaking to us this evening? Do you know that the Lord is saying the same thing to you tonight? Do you know that with His Son, He has freely given you all things? You have all things, whether it's in your pocket or in your account or in your house or wherever it might be, whether it's not there, it doesn't matter. It is true. My God shall supply all your needs. You will not be lacking. And He has promised. And if it isn't enough, get on your knees and ask Him for the very thing you think you need. And I'd be surprised if He doesn't give it to you only Don't sin. Don't sin. This is what God is saying here. Isn't that wonderful? Well, David heard the Lord, and he felt bad. Verse 13, he confessed. Now, I want you to notice the confession in verse 13. It is all of six words. He committed adultery, he killed a man, and his confession is all of six words. Watch, verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Six words. And Nathan said to David, notice the Lord's response, The Lord also has put away your sin, thou shalt not die. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Six words. You know, it seems unfair, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's committed adultery and he's killed the, the, the man... Um, Uriah and what is Uriah thinking if Uriah could think in death well he can't and it's a good thing I suppose and I would hope that Uriah will be in heaven and, and scratching his head probably because David will be in heaven too and I wonder what Uriah will be thinking I mean what's fair about this the guy takes my wife and he takes my life and he only has to say sorry it's like It's like two mothers, you understand? They have children, they're playing together. One little child takes another child's toy and the mother says to him, now wait a minute, you know, you're making Johnny cry. Bring back the toy and say you're sorry. So they waddle over there and they say, sorry. (laughs) They don't mean it a hoot. Now, I'm not saying that David didn't mean it. David actually, truly was repentant here and he meant it. But if you look at the verse, it's only six words. I have sinned against the Lord. And with that, God rescued David, cleansed him from all unrighteousness, Ah, but he didn't get away with it. He lost four sons on account of it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So don't think you can sin and get away with it. (laughs) Yeah. We have no permission to sin. Turn with me now to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're still looking at confession here. Only we're going to look at it in a, in a different way. 
And before we're done with John chapter 8, I think you're going to think my theology all messed up. I would like to ask you not to throw any tomatoes or rotten eggs until I'm done. I think I can pull myself out of it. But you might think it's strange there for a minute. We're in John chapter 8. This is our last story for this evening. A group of Pharisees. And by the way, Pharisees were nice people. They were pastors in that day. That's what they were. They were the pastors of the day. However, they'd fallen into some degree of corruption, it seems like, because a group of pastors had gotten together and decided that in an effort to trap Jesus, one of them would have to go and have a sexual relationship with a harlot. Now, I don't see pastors of today do something like that. I sure hope not. In any case, you know, even if it was to trap somebody, it, you know, it isn't God's way. But anyway, these guys got together and, and they caught this one of, one of their numbers with this harlot in the very act. You can see that in verse 4. This is John chapter 8. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Okay? So they drag this woman over to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Listen, the Bible says that if a woman is caught in adultery, she ought to be stoned. What do you say? And if he says, stone her, then they can report him to the Roman government and say he's usurping your authority, he has no authority to say that or to do that, something's wrong with that fellow. And if he says, don't stone her, then they can go to the people and say, you see, he says he's the Messiah, but he doesn't even believe the Bible. Because the Bible says someone who commits adultery should be stoned. Now Jesus might have gotten out of this, of this predicament by two technicalities. First of all, they were supposed to bring the two offending parties to the judge. They only brought the woman. And secondly, the husband of the wife is supposed to bring the woman to the judge, and there was no husband involved. And so it was all convoluted. And he could have gotten out of it that way. But he didn't choose to get out of it that way. You remember how he chose to do it? Yeah. He just knelt down and began to write in the dust. And after he wrote a few little things, he stood up again and he says, those of you who have never sinned, let him cast the first stone. Go ahead, stoner. <laughs> well, there's none that could cast the first stone because what was he writing in the dust? Yeah, so he knelt down again and he continued to write in the dust their sins. And we can understand that that's what he was writing because they left from the oldest to the next oldest to the next oldest all the way down the line until they were all gone. He knew all of their ages and he knew all of their sins. It must have blown them away, don't you? Well, it did blow them away. <laughs> they left. <laughs> yeah, they left. Now we go to verse, um, verse 11, uh, verse 10. And this is where the story really begins for us this evening. Okay. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman... He said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, wait a minute here. We have a theological problem at this point. How could Jesus say to this woman, neither do I condemn thee? She was caught in the very act of adultery. Does the Bible condemn adultery? Well... Why is he saying, neither do I condemn thee? Uh, 
There is no evidence in the passages in any case that this woman came confessing. There is no evidence in the passage that she came repenting. When she came, she was dragged there, and if she expected anything, was maybe to be executed or something like that. She comes to him, and without anything, Jesus out of the blue says, neither do I condemn thee. And by the way, what is the opposite of condemnation? It's justification. You can read that in Faith and Works there somewhere. I don't know where I've got it. Faith and Works, page 104. The opposite of condemnation is justification. That's what it says here. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. So what Jesus was saying in the negative, neither do I condemn thee, he was actually saying in the positive, I too justify you. He was handing her justification. She didn't ask for it. She didn't confess. She didn't repent. She didn't do anything. He took justification and he put it in her lap and he said, go and sin no more. You've got all the power in the world. You are forgiven. Now, I don't, you know, I wrestled with that and, and there's probably some of you in the audience who already have the the understanding of what's going on here. But it took me a while to understand what was going on here. So let me try, if I can, to uh, illustrate it, to try to explain it. Let me ask you a question. Did the woman ask to be born in this world, do you think? If she'd had a choice to be born here or to be born in a perfect other world that hadn't fallen, which do you suppose she would have chosen? Yeah, but she wasn't born there. She was born here. Was it her fault she was born here? No. Could God condemn her for being born here? No way. Okay. Did the woman ask to be born with a sinful nature? If you had a choice between having a perfect nature and a sinful nature, which would you choose having the experience you've had with your wonderful nature? Yeah. What a discouraging thing that is, this nature that I've got. Absolutely discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Was it her fault she had a sinful nature? Do you think God condemned her for having a sinful nature? No, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault. Well then, what do people with sinful natures do? Really? Yeah. That's what people with sinful natures do. Can you see it? Can God condemn us for sinning? No. And that's where you might start to say, now wait a minute, am I in the right church? <laughs> I can still... I can still pull out of it, I think. Just hang on. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.